we I ask our hearts uh, for the message that we are about to receive. I pray that you would um, be with Pastor Wick as he uh, faithfully presents your word and that none of it would go home, would go away void, that we would um, take it to heart and uh, that we would use your word to, um, to minister to others around us. Lord, I want to lift up this morning um, our dear friend and sister, Paula Kroon, and I just thank you for all the work that you have done in her life and with uh, all the medical issues. I just um, I thank you for your faithfulness, and I do ask that you would continue to uh, to be with her as, uh, Lord, I just, I just ask that you'd give her rest and give her um, sleep and the, the healing that, that only you can provide. And I, I also lift up uh, Christina as uh, you have her um, doing your work around the world. Lord, uh, I just thank you. I thank you for her willingness to serve you in whatever way you may call. And I do pray that you would um, bless her time as, as she is uh, in the thick of it, as she is doing your work, and that we can um, be back here at home and supporting her with our prayers. And I just ask that you would give us all the willingness to, to go out and to serve you. And in whatever way, in whatever capacity that, that your will be. So I just lift all this up in your name and ask this in your son's name. Amen. Thing here this morning, I'd like to invite the children, elementary school up to, what do you go through here, fifth grade? And come on up and sit down here. Come on. Come up, come up, come up. This doesn't work unless you come up. Today, uh, especially, you know, grab a seat. Grab a seat there. You can sit on the floor if you want. I used to say all the time in the last church I served, grab a seat or sit on the floor. And there's probably more than this. There's some upstairs. Here's, an, here's another guy. Come on. Come on down. All right. So I'm going to try to do a children's story because uh, I'm your pastor too. All right? And I do that every Sunday, and I'll have something. And sometimes you have to be up close because I have stuff to show you. But today, you can look up at the screen. So the first picture we've got here, does, do any of you know what that is a picture of? What is it? it? It's a waterfall in a boat. And do you know what waterfall? Do you know? Ah, it's, ah, yes, it's Niagara. It's Niagara Falls. It's between the United States and Canada. Near, it's near Buffalo, New York. And uh, it's where all of the water from the Great Lakes, Superior, Michigan, Huron, and Erie at that point, fall over this big cliff, basically, the Niagara Escarpment, 200 feet or so, and then continues on into Lake Ontario and then out down through the St. Lawrence River into the ocean. That's a lot of water. That's a lot of water. Back a long time ago, 
there was a man by the name of Blondin who was a tightrope walker. So let's see the next picture. And here's a drawing of him. He decided he was going to string a rope across the falls and he was going to walk across the falls. This was in the year 1859. That was a really long time ago. It was in June of that year that he did it, and uh, he was successful. Huge crowds came. And then he scheduled over the July 4th weekend another walk, and even more people came. And then he scheduled another walk in August of that year, and the crowds were immense. They just People came by the tens of thousands to see him. And so here he is walking across the Niagara Falls on this tightrope. Well, let's see the last picture because here's a stunt that he did. He had a wheelbarrow and he wheeled a wheelbarrow across. This was in August of 1859. He went back and forth across and everybody was amazed and he said now to the crowd on the American side of the river, he said, how many of you here believe that I could put 150 pounds of sand into this wheelbarrow? and roll it across. And actually, people were taking bets that he couldn't. He was going to fall to his death. And he put 150 pounds of sand in there, and he rolled across the tightrope, turned around and came back the other way, completely successfully, and everybody cheered the great Blondin, the French tightrope walker. Then he said, how many of you believe I could take a 150-pound man and put him in this wheelbarrow and walk across the tightrope. And everybody raised their hand, said, yes, we believe it. And Blondin pointed to the one of them and said, okay, you, sir, get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> it is not reported that the man got in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> Nobody got in the wheelbarrow. He did that day, however, carry his manager, who set up all of this stuff, on his back across the river and back again, which is just incredible because he had to stop several times to rest. I wouldn't have want to have been that guy. I'd rather be in the wheelbarrow, I think. But this is an illustration of something. This is something that actually happened. It's an illustration of something. We come to knowledge, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We invite him into our heart. We say, believe on Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. What does that mean? That means that we trust in and we rely on him and the work that he did for us on the cross to take the penalty for our sin, and that he rose from the dead to give us the gift of eternal life. When we say we believe, we are trusting and relying on. Now, there are many people who say, oh, I believe Jesus can do that. But many of those people don't get in the wheelbarrow. And so my challenge to you, boys and girls, and to all of you here this morning, are you people who believe that Jesus can do it? All right, have you gotten in the wheelbarrow? Are you really trusting in him to get you to heaven? All right, that's my story for today. You can take your seats. See, they won't be long. Okay. And a word from our sponsor, Interim Pastor Ministries, before I continue. Remember, next week after... Our, our third Sunday meal, we'd like you to stay for maybe a half hour or so of reflection as we celebrate the top ten signs of spiritual health and strength at Hastings Berean Bible Church. Uh, in the back of the sanctuary on the table, 
uh, where usually you pick up your bulletin, there were a stack of these. Uh, these are prayer triad guidelines. And so I've encouraged our uh, church council people, church board people, to get together a group of three. Uh, any of you can do this. I'll probably be talking to one or two others to actually do some recruiting. Uh, but you don't have to wait. Uh, if you just take the guidelines and get together with a couple other people, begin to pray. The goal is to pray uh, 10 one-hour sessions over the next 100 days. And the guidelines will guide you through some specific topics having to do with this interim period as we get ready for our next pastor. Discovering what Jesus wants us to be and who Jesus wants to be uh, our next pastor. All right, our scripture today is from the 17th chapter of the book of Acts in verses 16 through 34. Our Heavenly Father, as we go to your word, we acknowledge that you have inspired it. Your Holy Spirit worked through the hands of a man, Luke, who wrote all of this down. Luke was careful, we know, to collect the history, but your Spirit inspired him and informed him. And so we are reading words that are supernatural. This is not just a history written by a person. This is a history written by your Holy Spirit. Help us to receive it for what it is, the Word of God. And the Lord, may it shape our thinking. Lord, may it expose any sin in our life. May it work in us to bring about repentance and deeper faith in Jesus today. In his name we pray, amen. Beginning with uh, verse 16 in Acts 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he was, he was uh, waiting for uh, Timothy and Silas to join him from Berea at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, the usual methodology. Paul always started with the Gentiles, or with the Jews rather, in the synagogue, where there were Jews and also Gentiles who were God-fearing people, who recognized revealed religion, that the Jews had the truth. And so now he's talking to some what were called Greeks and Jews in the synagogue, as always, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So he's a street preacher. He's out in the marketplace. He's, he went to the local mall, if you will, and he was talking to people about Jesus. Um, some of you might are, may be familiar with Jews for Jesus. You know that group, Jews for Jesus? Okay, they're a terrific group. Um, and and I've, I've met some of them, some of their key people over the years personally. And they are um, basically like New York Jews are. Um, they're confrontive, they're bold, they don't brook any nonsense, and they're out there in the streets, and they have street preaching in New York City every summer. And they did what Paul did. And they don't think anything of stopping people cold and telling them about Jesus and, and arguing with them about the truth of the gospel and so on. And this is what Paul was doing. He was in the marketplace. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Now the Greek word actually here is seed picker. You're talking like, like the little birds on the ground below your bird feeder that are pecking at the, you know, the smaller seeds that fall on the ground. And there wasn't a complimentary comment on their part. Others said, hmm, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. 
because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Wow, this is just like today, uh, at least what it used to be. News at 11 or 10 if you live in the Midwest, right? Isn't that what we do? Every day we turn on the news. Now we probably, we probably go to our devices, our phone or our tablet, and we, we can look at the Internet news. We're interested in what's new. This started in Athens, this idea that you had to have the news. What's the latest? What's going on? And they, they, spent, they were really addicted to the Internet there in Athens. They could hardly wait to find out. And here this guy comes in the marketplace arguing with people and testifying to Jesus. And this was interesting to them. They wanted to hear about this that was something new, something different. So Paul was invited. The Areopagus was, had been a, actually a civil court, but over the years it had kind of devolved, and, and now it was a place where uh, educational matters were adjudicated and also where philosophy was discussed. So he was just part of a discussion. He wasn't on trial. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So as we see in this section of uh, chapter 17, Paul moves on from Berea, leaving behind him to continue the ministry there, Silas and Timothy. He goes on alone, accompanied 
from Berea as far as Athens by the brothers from Berea. Now, Athens, we know the name of that town. Uh, we probably didn't know much about Berea unless we took a Bible class. It was not, it was not on the beaten track. Uh, we probably didn't really know much about Thessalonica either, but Athens we've learned about. We learned about it in high school history. We learned about it in our basic philosophy classes. This, this is the heart of Greek culture. This is where democracy was born in the city of Athens. It had a great heritage. So if Thessalonica was Philadelphia, then Athens is Boston. The, the, the heart of, of American culture, the, the, the beginnings of learning, the seat of Harvard University. This is it. This is the place where all of the wisdom of the world is concentrated. And the influence of the early Athenian philosophers, Socrates and Plato and others, continues on to this day. To this day, still, it has an impact on it. This is an important meeting that Paul had. It was not particularly successful in terms of winning converts, however. We'll talk about that. But in this place, there was all of this idolatry. In spite of all of this wisdom and all of this intelligence, the city was full of idols. And one of them was to the unknown God. So this is part of Paul's approach. We'll get to that in a minute. This is a place that was pagan in the modern sense of the word pagan. In the New Testament sense of the word pagan, by the way, that word meant people who lived out in the country. And in other words, let's see, we were in Blue Hill last night. Blue Hill, that's pagan. <laughs> it, it didn't mean anything about religion. It just meant they weren't city people. Okay, Because you know why? Christianity was initially a city religion. That's where the gospel was proclaimed first and where the converts were first won. And so there were lots of Christian converts in the cities, but there weren't very many out in the country. So that's kind of a first century thing. But today, pagan means something else. Other. It means just people who don't know anything about revealed religion. They have their own man-made gods, or they're atheistic. They don't have revealed, they don't believe in the Bible. That's what a pagan is to us today, at least from our Christian standpoint. There's an ignorance of Scripture a rejection of Scripture, or just a completely blank on it. This is our world. Athens is now where we all live. Barna Research recently identified since 1991 until 2021, those identifying as Christian in the United States dropped from 86% to 46%. Less than half of the population of the United States now identifies as Christian. And a, a similar drop in the belief of inspiration of Scripture, 87% to 41%. By the way, so that means there's 5% of the people who identify as Christians don't think that the Bible is God's Word. Isn't that incredible? And in 2021, only 30% of the population believes that salvation is based on repentance and faith in Christ. That means that there are about, uh, what's that, about 16% uh, of the people who claim to be Christian don't even understand what a Christian is. They haven't gotten in the wheelbarrow, okay? So there's, a lots, there's lots of knowledge in our world today. People know a lot of stuff. Um, but the more we learn, though, the less we know, because the knowledge that we have today is godless. We live in Athens, in pagan Athens. 
So what was true of Athens? It was full of idols, full of idolatry. And as Paul would write to the Romans, it was, it was like those who deny that there is a creator. They had instead created their own gods. They had man-made gods. These were gods that could be manipulated by the people who had built them, had made them. We have the same thing. You know, so when I was a kid, we must have had such an idol because my dad owned a little idol of Chief Pontiac. It was on the hood of his car. And we followed Chief Pontiac wherever he went. We went, well, I was probably in fourth or fifth grade when we drove all the way from Minneapolis to Denver. And we drove on US 30 across Nebraska. And uh, we followed Chief Pontiac the whole way. You know, that's the kind of a God that people want. A God who goes in front of them and he goes wherever they point him. That's all an idol is, folks, is a man-made God that goes where you point him. That's what people want to make the living God into. That's exactly what the Israelites wanted. We don't know what happened to Moses, they said to Aaron. Make us a God that we can follow. And where do they want to go? Back to Egypt. We want a God who will lead us where we want to go, not a God who leads us where he wants us to go. And we have that kind of idolatry today. We have it in the pagan world around us. Unfortunately, sometimes we also have it in the church. We've reduced the living God whose ways are not our ways and whose thoughts are not our thoughts into something that is smaller and more controllable. My God, people will say, my God would never do that. I've known supposedly born-again people say, my God is never going to send anybody to hell. Well, then you don't have a God who's the God of Scripture because the God of the Bible is going to send people to hell. You know who talked about hell more than any other character in the Bible? is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he warned about the fires of hell. And interestingly, that's what Paul does here in his sermons. There's a day of reckoning coming before the living God who will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. This is pagan Athens. This is our world today. Idolatry. And also worldly philosophy. And there are two main philosophers that are mentioned here. The the philosophy of Stoicism and the Epicureanism philosophy. Stoicism was founded by Zeno back in the 4th century B.C., and it sounds kind of familiar. It valued living in harmony with nature. So it had kind of a, a picture of nature as a peaceable kingdom, and if we could just kind of blend ourselves and, and meld with it, then all would be well. You know, I, I want to tell you something, my friends. Uh, A couple of years ago, I spent a year in La Crosse, Wisconsin, which is on the Mississippi Flyway for birds. So I bought a bird feeder. By the end of my time there, I was going through 80 pounds of black oilers a month. I was going over the Menards and loading up two big 40-pound bags of black oilers to feed these. I suddenly realized at that point I could have a dump truck full of black oilers and it wouldn't be enough. But I saw every kind of bird in the world, at least in North America, come through and eat at that bird feeder. It was a mess. And if anybody thinks nature is a peaceable kingdom, they haven't been paying attention to what's going on at the bird feeder. 
It was a place of violence and bloodshed and ruthless competition and chipmunks. It was adorned with chipmunks. They're cute as can be, but their little cheeks full of birdseed. But at any rate, nature's not a peaceable kingdom. A pastor friend of mine in Gross Point, Michigan, retired, and, and in his retirement, the first thing he did was he took a survival course. And uh, he spent a couple of weeks in Arizona, in the Arizona desert, being trained, and then he spent, uh, I think it was a whole week, out in the desert on his own. And he said, well, the one thing they taught us is the desert is not your friend. And I think that's generally true with Mother Nature. If we don't know what we're doing out there, the nature is going to kill us. It's full of all kinds of things. Of course, the desert, so he said, and he went out there, spent that week, he said, you know what I learned about the desert? Everything in the desert is sharp. There's no place to sit down. The sand gets in your shorts. It's uncomfortable. There are rattlesnakes. There are poisonous spiders. It's really uncomfortable. Nature is not our friend. But, but the, the Stoics said, well, nature is our friend. We can only live in harmony with nature. Well, I don't know if nature's going to agree. Does nature want to live in harmony with us? That seems to be the question, all right? But this is Stoicism. We have kind of the same idea today. The primacy of reason was part of the Stoic approach, and that's certainly true today. It has to be rational. You have to be able to explain it. This has been especially true since the 18th century. The age of reason dawned, and to some degree, the, the modern age, we still live in it, except now we're past that, and we're in the postmodern age, which doubts everything. But the age of reason said everything can be explained. So we had 19th century biblical scholarship and bleeding over into the 20th century, which tried to explain the miracles in the Bible in rational means. So, for example, the reason that the Red Sea parted was it wasn't really the Red Sea, it was the Sea of Reeds, and it was a great wind that blew, and it, the ground became dry, and they could walk across, and then the water came back, which is somebody was just saying last night, does not explain why all the Egyptians drowned in it, but it was an explanation. And, and all of the ten plagues, I've seen explanations of that, rationally explaining how one thing comes after another. For goodness sakes, folks, it was a miracle. You cannot rationally explain Jesus creating eyesight in a man who was born blind. There is no rational explanation for that. It was a miracle. Jesus walking on the water was not, as the 19th century explanation said, there was an extremely cold spell and parts of the Sea of Galilee froze over. I don't think the Sea of Galilee has been frozen over since the last ice age. Do you? Jesus was walking on the water because it was a miracle. It is not rationally explainable. But the Stoics wanted a rational explanation, and there are people today who just say, I can't, I can't believe the Bible because of those miracles that are in the Bible. Well, let me tell you something about the Bible. The first book of the Bible that was revealed to mankind is the book of Job. Job is a contemporary of Abraham. And Abraham comes before Moses, who wrote the Pentateuch. The very first thing that God revealed to man was the message in the book of Job. Have you ever thought about that? Now, I understand it wasn't written down until much later, but this was a story that the Hebrew people knew. They knew about Job. I believe Job was a real person. Is there anything in the book of Job that says, oh, this is just a drama? It's presented as this is what happened. And we get the additional part of the story that Job didn't know anything about, that it starts with an argument between God and Satan. It's a very interesting story, isn't it? And I want to give you a summary of that story. 
just a couple of sentences. In the book of Job, the book ends, and Job is never told why all this happened to him. He's not told the first two chapters of the book of Job. That's added later by the editor who put it all together. Job never knew that there was an argument between God and Satan. All he knew was all of the terrible things that happened to him. And God never explains it to him in the last two chapters of the book of Job where God does have a dialogue with Job. You ever, ever think about that? Job never gets a reason why. And yet he trusts God. And so the overarching message of the book of Job regarding God is not so much in chapter and verse, but in what happens. And it is this. God is saying to us in the book of Job, I am not obligated to explain my ways to you. That's a really good place to start with the journey of faith. Because there are going to be things that we do not understand, that we cannot understand. Feynman, the great physicist, said, and he was certainly not a believer, but he said this. He said, the universe is not only stranger than you imagine, it is stranger than you can imagine. And if that's true of the physical universe, how much more true is it of spiritual things? There are things that we will never understand, at least in this life. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Praise the Lord for that. There are things that we can know and understand, and we can know and understand how to find salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. But we will never get the answer to everything about God. And he's not obligated to explain it to us. He invites us to trust in him, to get in the wheelbarrow and trust in him. Stoicism says, nope, all we got is reason. If you can't explain it to me, if I can't understand it, then it can't be true. And that's where we are today with many people. The Stoics viewed God as a world soul. It was kind of a form of pantheism. I think of Star Wars, trust the force, Luke, you know. It's very much like that. They believed in equal rights for all men. And there's some, there's some good things about Stoicism. Good for them. And we're still trying to work towards that. This is, this is, by the way, I think one of the great liberating things about Scripture is we're all on the same ground before the cross of Jesus Christ. That is, we're all totally depraved sinners in need of the grace of God. But there's an equality in that. And God makes salvation available to all kinds of people. So in that, in a sense, the Stoics are right, very noble. The Stoics tended to be very morally upright by their own standards, but they were extremely proud and very self-sufficient. The idea is, I'm the captain of my own soul. I can handle this. I can take care of this. I can do this. You know, one of the main messages of Scripture is in Romans 7, which is a denial of what the Stoics believe. What did Paul say? The good that I would do, that I can do with a little bit of help? No. He says, the good that I would do, that I can't do. And the evil that I would not do, that I do. And he was so frustrated with himself. First of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is, I came to realize that I was powerless over my addiction. That's a biblical principle, by the way. Sin takes control of our lives, and we're too weak to overcome it. But God, in his grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds the more. Praise the Lord. That's anti-Stoic. The Stoic says, I'm the captain of my soul. I can do this. 
Whereas the publican stood before God in the temple and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the Christian message. The message of the gospel is the hope is not found in our ability to overcome, but in God's grace. Contemporary parallels to Stoicism. It's all around us, exalting reason, pride in one's own ability, no real need for grace. And those who don't need grace are going to spend eternity in hell. There is no such thing as somebody who doesn't need grace. But those who reject it are stunk. The Epicureans, Epicurus also, 4th century B.C., over into the 3rd century, they believe, uh, based on the atomic physics, basically, of another Greek, Democritus, if I'm saying his name right, that the universe happened by chance. Does that sound familiar? That's what most people believe today. Well, we're all, it's all an accident, you see. And the chief end of man was pleasure. But they, they narrowed down a definition of pleasure. It, it wasn't quite what you thought. It was, pleasure was, was rather, it was kind of like uh, Eastern religion. It was, it was about tranquility, painlessness, freedom from passions and superstitions. They denied the thought that there were gods or any supernatural beings that were interested in what happened to mankind. However, the Epicurean philosophy often devolved into pursuit of fleshly pleasures. If the chief end is pleasure, well, then let's redefine. Pleasure is not tranquility or painlessness or freedom from passions. It's gratifying our own lusts. So some of them ended up like that. But that's the way they lived. And certainly, we've got, I don't have to go into parallels for that today. Living for the pleasure of the moment without regard for eternal judgment. What eternal judgment? The gods don't care what's happening to us. Just go for it. You only go around once in life. You've got to grab for all the gusto you can. That's a beer ad, as I recall, about 30 years ago. Epicureanism. So Paul ministers in this environment, and he preaches a sermon using his usual method. Street preaching and so on. Moves on to the Areopagus by their invitation. And so he starts that sermon, and he's very polite. I perceive in all things that you are very religious. And by the way, that's sarcasm. He walked all over that city. He saw idol after idol after idol, and he just hit them with it. I don't think they realized he was being sarcastic. Are you like me, and do you believe that there's a possibility that sarcasm is a spiritual gift? I think, it, I think it might be. I don't know. But, I, but Paul, and so I think Paul is being sarcastic. Oh, yeah, I've seen it. You guys are really religious. And I think whoosh, that went right by them. And you've got this idol to an ongoing, unknown God. Well, good for you. And that's the God I want to tell you about. And in spite of what you Epicureans believe, he's the God that created the world and everything in it. And friends, this is so key. You know, we've been stuck since the 19th century with the descendants, intellectual descendants of Darwin. who think it's just all happened by accident, it's all by chance, it's survival of the fittest and all that stuff. And, and this way of thinking denies the creator. That's, what, that's where we've come to. This is what the Epicureans did. Oh, it just all happened by accident. And most people today, I think, out in that pagan world, that's what they think. At least they've suspended belief in a creator. Interestingly... If you go and you read what's happening in synagogues and Jewish prayers, God is almost always addressed initially as, oh God, creator of the universe. That's important. It's important that we recognize it. We don't necessarily know how he did it, but he did it. 
He started everything going, and he was active in it, and man was formed by a special act of creation. He didn't happen by accident. And it's so important to grasp this. Um, There was a woman in the church in Spencer, Iowa, where our first interim was, who's a, a, a medical doctor, a pathologist. And uh, she came, her father was a medical doctor who was not only a medical doctor, but an atheist. And so she grew up in an atheistic family. And when she was in medical school, she's studying physiology, and she said, I came to a study of the human eye. And I was about halfway through it when I realized Darwin was wrong. There is no way that the human eye happened by accident. It's got to come into being all at once or it's never going to work. Now, those who've written on creation science have gone even more deeply into this. It's it's called the principle of irreducible complexity. It's not something you can build one step at a time. It has to happen all at once. You can see it rather on the macro level in the human eye, but it goes way beyond that. It goes into the, into the, uh, the actual chemistry the biochemistry of the thing and the chemical steps that have to take place. And if even one of them is missing and doesn't work, nothing is going to work. There's no accidental life. Maybe you've heard the story about the argument between God and Satan, and Satan says, well, I can build a man better than you. So God says, all right, Satan, you're on. And so Satan gets his pile of dirt, God gets his pile of dirt, and God looks over and says, hey, make your own dirt. Exactly. He made it all, everything, starting from nothing. I don't even know what that means. I just accept that on faith. And unless we accept that God is the creator, we're not going to ever acknowledge that he's the owner. But he is the owner, and he is Lord of all. He is the boss. And we strayed from him, and his purpose is for us but he's provided a way back to him through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul is addressing this, announcing that God is the creator. He's given life to all. He finds common ground there with this unknown God and begins to explain what this unknown God is like. He gives life to everything. This is interesting, just a side point here. He determines, he makes them from one man. The whole human race is made from one man. We have so much racism in this country today by the very people who are supposedly promoting anti-racism. I, I just refuse it. Every time I fill out a form and it says for race, I put down human, even though I'm a Norwegian. <laughs> what am I saying? Because, because everything else is a lie. There is only one race, the human race. There are all kinds of ethnicities. Now I understood somewhere along the line, 10 or 15 years ago, they decided that people who are colorblind are really racist. Look, I don't deny the fact that people with dark skin have been discriminated against. I'm not denying there's such a thing as discrimination. What I'm denying is that there are different races. There's only one race, and God made it, and he made it from one man. We studied it in Sunday school. You know that. But, you know, so let's, let's claim our heritage. This is, we should not be divided on the basis of race because there is only one race. And God also set their times and their boundaries. So it's all right for nations to have borders. 
If I'm going to rant a little bit, why is it that there are people in the United States who think that we should be the only country in the world without a boundary, without a border? Everybody else has got borders. The Canadians are supposed to be, oh, they're so liberal, whatever. I remember back when Hong Kong was close to shutting down, 1999, went back to communist China, it didn't shut down. But, and so people from China were moving into Vancouver. Do you know how you got into, into Canada from Hong Kong? You had to have a million dollars, Canadian. You had to promise to start a business within one year that would hire 12 Canadians. They just weren't lowering the gate and letting anybody in. And yet, and they're supposed to be a liberal country with a liberal immigration policy, baloney. God says, God set boundaries. Now, maybe he's torn our boundary down because he wants our country to be something different. I'm not going to judge on that one. But it's not biblically wrong for nations to have boundaries. It is biblically wrong to claim that there are different races. There's only one race, and there are nations with boundaries. And God also set times. Kingdoms rise and fall. I'm a little afraid that we're living in the time of the fall of the United States of America. It's beginning to come apart at the seams. And yet, it's still the greatest place in the world to live. Amen? I wouldn't want to live anyplace else, even if it is on the downward slide. I'll tell you what, it's worse every place else. Russia's not doing so good lately. China's not doing very good lately. So I'm not sure there's an ascendancy of somebody else, but God determines this. This is what Paul is saying, some revolutionary things here. The Greeks were very proud about the civilization that they had built and Alexander the Great had carried Greek culture to the whole world, and then the Romans just basically adopted it, just like the United States of America pretty much adopted the culture of Great Britain. The United Kingdom, England, is Greece. The United States is Rome, essentially, just like what happened in recent history. And they were so proud of what they had done. And Paul is saying here, you know, really, God does this. God sets the boundaries. God sets the rise and fall of kingdoms. Sidebar to this message today, but he's telling them the truth. You live, folks, in a world that is built by God and controlled by God. Shocking story. People think differently. They think, oh no, I'm in charge of my own life, in spite of all of the evidence to the contrary. And then he says, God's purpose for man, to seek and find him. And then he quotes a, a, Cre a Cretan poet, Epaminondas, and a Cilician poet, Aratus. This is amazing. Paul was a very learned person. I don't know if it blew their minds in the Areopagus that this Jew knew Greek poets, but he knew Greek poets. And I'm sure they know him too. I don't know. I've never read either one of them other than in the book of Acts. But I think that's amazing that he did. He was a very, very learned person. And he's talking about their own culture. Look, in, in your own culture, there are people who have grasped these truths about God. In him we live and move and have our being. See, he built it and he sustains it, and he controls it. He's not far from any one of us, and he wants us to come to him. And then he goes on to explain what we must do to come to him. And he uses the R word, repent. You need to turn around from living these self-determined, selfish lives depending purely on rationality and you need to turn to the living God you need to repent and here's why you need to repent and you better do it soon because there's a day of judgment coming and God proved that 
by raising this appointed judge from the dead. At this point, he lost his audience. I think he was going to explain in more detail about Jesus. He didn't get a chance to do it. But he introduces this thought and talks about the resurrection. And at that point, well, as he explains in his letter to the Corinthians, to the Greeks, the cross is foolishness. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. It includes the resurrection. The whole work of Christ is foolishness. It doesn't happen. It's not rational. So it doesn't fit our world. Now we have the sad end of the story. Well, the good end is some believe, but most of them just mocked, because that can't happen. And there are a few that said this. We'll hear you about this later. We'll hear you about this later. This is like Felix. We're going to come and learn about Felix a little bit later on, but he said the same thing. He was interested in what Paul had to say, but uh, it's not right now. You see, I'll talk about it later. Is there anybody here named Felix, by the way? Because I don't want to say anything offensive, but I, I, I think it was J. Vernon McGee that said about this particular question. And so Felix, before whom Paul stood, well, today we name our sons Paul and our cats Felix. Just to let you know where... Felix is a perfectly good name, but that's a fact. And, and these are... These, this is a whole stadium here, the Areopagus, this whole theater is full of Felixes, most of them. Thought, well, we'll hear you about the, you know, you know, here's the thing. Now is the day of salvation. If you put it off, if you put it off, you don't know if you're going to be alive to ever repent and turn to Jesus Christ. Now is the time to repent of the sin that's in your life. And that's a message for believers as well as for unbelievers. Maybe there's some cleaning up that needs to happen in your life. We should follow that example of the Apostle Paul, first of all, that there is a Dionysius who steps forward and a Damaris who hears, hears the message and they make a decision. And, and um, Ancient tradition says that Dionysius became the first pastor of the church in Athens. We don't have any biblical record of that, but I think the ancient tradition is usually trustworthy about these kinds of things. The first pastor is converted on this particular day. And then there were those who were putting it off. Don't put it off. And don't put it off. If, if you get convicted of sin, and even in your life as a believer, what happens if you put off repentance? Do you get more spiritually healthy? Do things go better and better for you? Isn't what happens to Christians who sin is that they, they're going to be rebuked by the reproofs of life, things are going to start to go haywire. There's, there's a coldness that begins to develop, a, a beginning, a growing disinterest in spiritual things. Relationships don't go as well as they did before. Sin hurts Christians. And just as the pagan Athenians needed to repent in order to come to salvation, so believers need to be willing to repent and come back to that closeness to regain our first love for the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's sin in our life, don't wait, because now is the day of salvation. Then we should follow Paul's example. It is right for us to be provoked. I raised this question this morning in our study of, of uh, Genesis chapter 4. God asks, uh, he asks Cain, are, why, are, why are you angry? Why are you angry? What provokes you? What makes you angry says a lot about your spiritual condition. And Paul was provoked by idolatry. 
He was provoked by the fact that there were people who couldn't see. It was so obvious that there is a creator who's got a design for the universe. He's got a plan. He wants people to find him. And he was provoked that there were people so dedicated to their sin that they couldn't see it. We should be provoked by that. There are people out there who are lost. And the godlessness of the lost should provoke us. Not that we're angry with them, but we're angry with the devil and with sin that keeps them in bondage. And our battle against that is to proclaim the gospel. That's what we bring to the table is the gospel. And it is good to follow Paul's example. He went to the marketplace daily and conversed about his faith. We need to be faithful in our witness to Jesus. Paul's example in his sermon, he sought common ground in his conversation. Now, some people seem to be eager, some of the commentators I read on this seem to be eager to accuse Paul of maybe slipping away because he says to the Corinthians, when he went to them, which is where he went from Athens, what did he do? He said, I determined to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. As, as if he realized he made some kind of mistake in Athens. I don't think he made a mistake in Athens. He was presenting Christ and him crucified in a way that they would understand. And Corinth was a city that was the pits compared to Athens. It was not a cultural center. It was a cesspool of prostitution. So it was a little bit different. He was not going to mess around. He'd just get right to it. But he wanted to appeal to the Athenian knowledge of things. They had some truth there that he could operate with. So he found common ground. And that's a good thing to do as we talk to people about Christ. What is it that they need? Maybe the problem is they got a moral problem in their life and they know it. And they can't get freedom from it. The only way through that, for that is through faith in Christ, repentance and faith. Seek common ground. And then always proclaim Jesus as creator, as Lord, as Savior, and as judge. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a faith that is reasonable. Not that it's subject to human reason, but there is a reason in the mind of Christ that is supernatural and miraculous and compelling. Lord, you reached down and you changed us by your grace. You brought us to the place where we could recognize that we were sinners and that we needed the shed blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from sin, to pay the penalty for sin. We thank you, Lord, that you transformed us by your supernatural power, which is an unreasonable thing, but a loving thing. Heavenly Father, help us to be so full of that transformed life and love that we are willing to bring that message to other people and to proclaim Jesus as creator, as Lord, as Savior, and as judge. In his name we pray, amen. Himself, the God of peace, make you holy in every part and keep you sound in spirit, mind, and body without fault when our Lord Jesus Christ comes. He who calls you is to be trusted. He will do it. Amen.